Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So we're preaching through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We called this sermon series Overthrow because that really is what will occur uh, if you imbibe St. Paul's message, that there will be things in uh, your life and conceptions that you have which will be uh, demolished and others that will be graciously granted to you that will uh, give you a better course in life and a new way of being. And so we're inviting God to engage in a little overthrowing today. So uh, Paul begins his letter with this, uh, this lovely and effervescent and giddy chapter of praise. We preached about this passage last Sunday, looking at the interventionist God and his interventionist apostle. And, and today I'd like to um, use a word to describe what that intervention looks like or how it affects us. So tonight, or today we're going to talk about the effect of that intervention, which can be summarized in a word that St. Paul uses three times right from the start, and it's blessed Blessed. I'm going to talk about blessedness today. Blessedness. And I'd like to define the term because it's become one of those overused religious terms that has almost no meaning. It's sort of white noise in the background. It's something that people just say if you're like from Alabama, right? You, you feel blessed. I don't know. Um, or bless their hearts or, um, or like, uh, or, or it's a mood boosting technique, right? Count your blessings. Or it's what you say when you're praying over a McRib, you know, God bless this sandwich, which is not possible. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't eat it. It's just not possible. Um, uh, and so it's, it's an empty term. It's a white noise term. It just generally means sort of good wishes or good feeling. And it's, uh, it's uh, pablo. It's, it's nothing. Unless you actually define it biblically. And then it's everything. It's everything. It's absolutely everything. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be blessed? To be blessed. If I can summarize the meaning in a very simple and slightly slogany term, it means this. To localize the benefits of heaven. It means to localize the benefits of heaven. That is, uh, heaven, which is the, the realm, the undying lands, the, the place of uh, recovery, the place of uncontested peace, the place of non-quarreling, the place where your family loves each other, the place where uh, you don't have terror in your heart, the place where you don't have panic attacks, the place where you don't have lupus or cancer, uh, the place where you never uh, go to a funeral or awake again. That is heaven. And when we pray that somebody is blessed, we're asking God to take all of those uh, beautiful qualities, those sublime qualities of the life to come and intersplice them into the life that now is. That's what we're asking. So when we say bless, what we mean is take a little bit of heaven and grant it on earth. This is why in the Lord's Prayer we say that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's, I think, what it means uh, within a biblical uh, understanding. Uh, and I want to just simply preach from verse 3 today. I'm going to refer to the rest of the passage in some vague ways, but I want to preach just on verse 3 with the word blessing because the word blessing is used three times. Three times. He's not being redundant. He's being very deliberate. He's trying to say something about why he's praising God in this first chapter, and he's praising God for blessing. So let's read verse 3, and I will talk about it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Three blessings. Blessed be the God and Father, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing. I'm going to examine all three. Let's call it call them the blessed source, the blessed position, and the blessed gifts. The blessed source, the blessed position, and the blesses, blessed gifts. So the blessed source, it's pretty obvious right from the start, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right from his opener. So everything that he now is going to write about in this letter is in a way a praise of and a result of the God from whom all blessings flow, right? So right from the start, he gives God all the credit. Right from the start, he gives God all the credit. He is the source of good. Now, that's a very profound thought and one that is uh, contrary to many conceptions that are around today. But within Judaism, which was Paul's mother religion, and then Judaism understood that the universe, everything that is, everything that you can see, everything that you can't see, is all predicated upon or built upon or centered upon a presence, a presence, a very real uh, and honest and uh, non-capricious and beautiful and a definitive presence, that everything is predicated on that presence. So you don't exist without the presence. Your parents don't exist without the presence. The, the, the nation that we have doesn't exist without the presence. Everything is predicated on this presence, and this presence is good. This presence has integrity and generosity. Um, and, and this is a way of seeing the world which is entirely uncynical and unfatalistic. Uh, that when we understand the world, we see it as a, as a good that has come from God. We see all the, the things that have landed in our laps that we don't deserve. All of those things are good gifts from a good and generous source. And even when we see evil in the world, we know that that evil does not eradicate or somehow sully the goodness that is beneath all things. It is an aberration away from that goodness. But nevertheless, the goodness still exists, still thrives, and will still overcome all that seeks to uh, thwart it or come against it. And so everything comes back to this blessed source within Judaism. And Paul calls this blessed source God, and not just God, but Father, Father. Because uh, for Paul, um, Paul thinks that God's sourceness, his sourceness, his originality, or his uh, causation is even made more evident, not just in creation, which is good enough, right? We see, and Romans 1 teaches this, that we see glimmers of the infinite and of the infinite's goodness in creation, in antelopes and in Antarctica, in the moral structure that God has given the world, in the art that's produced, in the music of the 1970s. All of it is rich with divinity. Uh, but nevertheless, Paul says that God's sourceness, or him being the fountain of all good things, is evidenced even further because he gave us something more than those things. He gave us a son, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you really want to know that God is good, that God is definitively good and not capricious or disinterested or pulling away or wincing from you, uh, you have to remember what the prayer book teaches. Now, the Book of Common Prayer, which is a, a, a literary act of genius, says this in, in the evening and morning prayer offices. It's the end, it's the closing prayer that everybody prays, that we thank you. This is, we thank you, God, for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, right? All the good things that we have. The lasagna and the sleeping in. All the good things in this life. But above all things, for your inestimable love in the redemption of the world. In other words, how we understand that God is good is not just because of the Grand Canyon, but it's because of the cross. It's because of redeeming love that'll be my theme till I die. That's how we know that God is definitively good. And so Paul is, uh, is right from the start, 
giving God the credit. Blessed are you because you're the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins with this exclamation of God being blessed, the source of blessing. By the way, so did we. How did we begin this service? We said the same thing Paul did, using slightly different words. Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right from the start, we give God the credit, and we say we are here to realign ourselves, our lives, our imaginations around the great enduring center, the great source of all things. We sing the same thing in the doxology. Praise God from whom some blessings flow. No, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing it in hymns. Come thou fount of every blessing. We are ascribing to God sourceness, that he is the fountainhead of all that is good and enduring. And by the way, it's a very healthy thing for you psychologically and spiritually when you're here to acknowledge that you are not your own source. I think it was Isaac Asimov that famously said, that human beings are the originators of all their successes, but only successful people can admit that. Uh, garbage. It's garbage. That perspective is excremental. That's uh, not true. Let me say this. I have a friend who is the rector of a very fancy church in Morristown, New Jersey. And uh, by the way, I lived in a house with nine bedrooms and made, made way too much money. Not that I'm jealous, but there it is. Um, well, anyway, do you remember Hurricane Sandy uh, that hit slammed into New Jersey. I mean, it cost New Jersey $30 billion, billion with a B. And every, uh, the power grid was just devastated. Well, my friend's church, St. Peter's in Morristown, was one of the few churches that wasn't devastated. And so what did they do? They housed everybody in the neighborhood for weeks, weeks, and fed them every day, three meals a day. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, and I asked my rector friend, how did you do it? And, and, uh, and they said, well, look, I wish I could take all the credit for this, but we were just one of the only buildings that, you know, in which the power grid wasn't destroyed. So what else could we do? So we had lights, electricity, and everybody else brought the food and cooked it. We just happened to house it. And then uh, she said to me, isn't it a great thing when you don't have to take any credit? It's a liberating thing not to think of yourself as a source. It's a liberating thing not to have to take credit for things that are good in your life. Um, <clears throat> that doesn't, of course, diminish our labor, and labor is good, but it qualifies our labor in a humble way. It said, yes, I was able to produce some good things in my life, but if I hadn't had these thousand things given to me or these thousand things align themselves in my life, I couldn't have produced anything. Everything ultimately goes back to the good source. Everything goes back to the good source. And that's why David, when he is um, gearing up for the temple in the Old Testament, uh, says, after lots of money was collected, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. That's beautiful. And if you can live that way, you'll really be free to see life as a gift and not a wage. See life as a gift and not a wage. You did not earn it. You don't really deserve it, truth be told. So who cares? Just enjoy it for what it is. A sheer gift from a good source. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's point one. Now point two, the blessed position. Paul continues in the passage. He has blessed us in Christ. I'm going to focus there. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now notice the blessed father is a blessed sharer. He, he doesn't sort of contain, withhold, draw back with his own unique status as a source, but instead starts sharing the very blessedness of his ontology and nature with other people, with human beings. Uh, and not just human beings, but renegades. Renegades who said, hell no. But who, because of the inner work of the Spirit and the drawing of God, 
have been made strangely open, strangely open to the Blessed Father. So he takes renegades and makes them royalty and grants them a new position. And the new position is being in Christ. You're now bonded to, a friend with, uh, connected to the supra-personality of Jesus of Nazareth for all time. You are connected to the God-man, and he's connected to you, and your stories are now intertwined, and they'll never be separated. And you are and, and in Christ means that you are also in the place in which Christ dwells. That is, in the heavenly places. Later, Paul delves more deeply into this subject, so I won't go too much into it now. Um, but Paul has a basic syllogism in mind here. He thinks, if we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs in heaven, then we also belong in heaven. Uh, and Jesus talks about this, by the way. He says in the fourth gospel, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you to myself, so that where I am, you will be with me also. So he's essentially saying in that passage, I'm preparing an inheritance for you. You will have your castle. You will have the tranquility that you long for. You will have the new Eden. And I'm going to go make sure that it's the case. And that's where you ultimately belong and where you will ultimately join me. Well, St. Paul is just tracing out that idea here. And he calls that blessedness. Blessedness. Um, that we, who were once renegades and God-haters and despisers and revilers and uh, devastated on the inside and reactive and petulant and whiny, that we are the people that God loves, as we are, and brings us into that place. Now, I think blessed is an odd term to associate with humans, given the biblical story. You may remember in the Genesis account of the fall, when we chewed the dark sacramental fruit, what happens? God does not say, blessed are you at that point. You remember what he says. It's the opposite of that. And he says it three times, actually. Cursed are you. Right? Now, uh, the, the word curse, uh, you know, has this sort of notion of a hex attached to it or so, kind of a dark spell. That's how we might think of it. But it means corrosion. It means that now the very things that you thought were binding you all together will, uh, will now corrode. And the relationships that you have with one another, with me, with the world, are all now going to corrode because you're cursed. And God curses many things in Genesis 3. He curses the serpent first, good choice. Then he curses uh, creation and work and relationships and men and women and all of it. It just corrodes like a Ford Focus. And I owned one, so I can say that. Um, uh, so that's what happens. Whenever something is cursed, it means the, the blessing is retreating. Yes, the blessing retreats. And when the blessing retreats and the, the powers of chaos start uh, coursing through the world, things fall apart because the center does not hold. The retreat of blessing in a curse means that the world slowly becomes more and more hellish. It takes on the framework of complete rebellion and annihilation and godlessness and lovelessness and self-intoxication. That's what curse means. That's the result of curse. Well, all of a sudden now in our text, it's almost like that didn't happen. The massive U-turn, the cursed are now called the blessed. The people that were under the sort of Damocles, the threats of enduring damnation are no longer so. Now we, the very renegades, are called blessed. How? Well, because of the maroon magic of the cross, it all switched. Because at the cross, according to St. Paul in Galatians, the blessed of God, Jesus of Nazareth, became the cursed of God, so that the cursed of God, that is us, could become the blessed of God. It's this magnificent, beautiful, sacrificial, loving, enduring exchange in which Jesus was able to bear 
the darkest of human pathology, to bear it into his skin and his heart and his soul and be broken by it so that we could be let off the hook, scot-free, sheerly by grace and not through some sort of uh, meritorious offering of our own. Uh, and, and so Jesus Christ, who was the only human who ever had the right to be in heaven because he was the unconquered hero, brings friends back home with him, all of us. And he grants us a position that endures because of his sacrificial love. Um, <clears throat> so we have a new position. And our new position is that our ultimate belonging, our home, our dwelling place, our empire, our nation is no longer here. Your ultimate and enduring place is with the man for others. So this is God, right? God is the blessed one who then grants blessing in terms of a new position and says, you are no longer cursed. You're now blessed. You are now rife with the life of heaven. And because of that, you'll endure unto eternity. So a little story to illustrate the point. George Handel, you may remember the famous uh, composer who wrote 42 operas and 29 sonatas and 120 cantatas. And he was a sheer genius. Beethoven once said of him, I would kneel before that man. Uh, well, uh, Handel ranks as one of the greatest composers in history, but he did have a very grave hardship late in life whenever a friend of his died. At age 56, he was past his prime. And in fact, there were little tracks that were written about him, about how he was past his prime and history needed to move on from his music. So he was depressed. He was in debt. Then he had a stroke, lost the, right so the use of his uh, right side. And he struggled very deeply to stay musically relevant and resented the fact that he was no longer relevant. But on August uh, 22nd, 1741, Handel felt, he felt what he called, he wrote about this, a new spark, a blessed visitation. And he immediately began composing again. And 21 days later, yeah, just three weeks, he emerged with a 259-page masterpiece called, you may know it, Handel's Messiah, <clears throat> the first act, or the final act rather, celebrates the risen Savior who shall reign forever and ever. Well, Handel inked three letters on the last page, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. But there's more to that story. Handel's Messiah debuted on Easter at the great music hall in Dublin, Ireland. But it wasn't a concert, it was a benefit. That inaugural performance raised, back then, $86,000, and that money was used to free 142 men from debtor's prison. The first blessing is the genius of the great man. The second blessing is setting 142 captives free. Well, that's what God does, the source of blessing, the spark of genius, uh, the elevated one, is not content to remain elevated but to lift everybody else up because a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, that's what Jesus does. He comes to share the blessing. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you will be with me too. That's point two. Now point three, the blessed gifts. So we have a blessed source, a blessed position, and lastly, blessed gifts. <clears throat> Let's read the whole thing again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> who has blessed us in, every, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Now, when I go over to my father's house on Christmas Day with uh, my wife and daughters, I, I would say that it's almost obscene, extravagant, what they do for Christmas. Uh, I believe in sort of an Amish minimalistic Christmas. They clearly have not gotten that memo. Um, every child has about 50 gifts to open. 
right? And uh, so that's just terrific, right? Because they definitely then don't make comparisons about the Amish-style Christmas at our house. But, um, but I'd like to think of that kind of extravagance uh, when it comes to God, because he has given us here every spiritual blessing, meaning there's more than one, every spiritual blessing, a multiplicity of gifts. And the prologue that we've read, the entire prologue today, lists these blessings. There are many of them here, heavenly blessings that come to us from the outside. Um, and let's just trace a few of them very briefly. Here's what is given unto us. And I will be coming back to these themes throughout this sermon series because Paul picks up the same material and delves more deeply into it as he goes. But verse four, the gift of choice, not our choice, because our choices are ridiculous, fickle, and almost always fraudulent. Um, no, not ours, God's choice. The Bible says God chose us in Christ and predestined us. Now, um, that means that God always comes to you before you come to him. Now, we can get lost in the mechanics of this and ask all sorts of, like, destabilizing questions. And, and like, if God chooses someone, I'm, I know. Like, I know. Okay. Can we just skip it, to, like, just for today? Like, let's put a pin in that. And maybe we can examine it some other day after a few martinis. But not today. Instead, how about we just think of it this way? That you might be loved before you're conceived, before you take a breath, before you eat oatmeal, before you decide to date, before you get your heart broken. Before all of that, how about? somebody actually thought of you and like loved you and said, I won't let this one get away. Like maybe, just maybe, God's will for you is that good, that he doesn't wait for you to be ready. Instead, he is already, he's, he's already marched in your direction. Like maybe that, right? Like maybe God is actually in control and maybe it's better than we think. Maybe he, he chose you. That's verse four. Now verse four again, the gift of renovation or moral renewal. He said that he has elected us that we would be holy and blameless before him. In other words, he wants you to become a new human so you don't have to suffer like you're suffering right now. Because when we act in an anti-holy fashion, we are acting in an anti-creation fashion against the grain of our created nature. And that causes dehumanization and destabilization in our lives and everything gets rotten when we do it. So he says, I want to cure you from that. I want to morally renovate you. Then verse 5, the gift of family. The text says, he adopted us. So we are no longer vigilantes without someone to look after us. Uh, And we're not scum. We're not immaterial. We were not a waste. We were not unplanned. Instead, we belong to the source. Then verse 7, we have the gift of pardon. Paul writes about reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins, that we are not the sum total of our deeds. Aristotle was wrong. That's not who we are. We are, in fact, defined by rampant pardon. Then there's verse 10, the gift of reconciliation, that he exists to unite all things in heaven and on earth. In other words, God wants to unmake the entirety of the fall and all the damage, not just the damage within your psychodrama, but the damage within the ocean, the damage within the world, the damage within uh, within family relationships. He wants to unmake all of it and renew everything. Verse 11, the gift of eternity, or what Paul calls twice inheritance, a time that funerals will cease and you'll have an enduring, everlasting life without problems. Just as God is eternal, he has created you in his image to be so. And then verse 13, the gift of God himself, that is the Holy Spirit, that we do not walk in these dark days amongst the dark hills alone, but instead God has companioned himself to us in order to bring the help and illumination that we need in the midst of a difficult life right here and right now. 
This is just a few of the gifts. I highlighted some of the big ones in this passage. There are others. But friends, if I can put it this way, and this succinctly, that's salvation. Salvation in the Bible is an obnoxiously large pile of gifts under the tree of the cross. Too many to count. Even difficult to appreciate in all of their grandness. There's just too many of them. And yet this is what God has given to us. God's gifts began before we were in an embryo, and they will endure long after we're cremated or coffined or lost at sea. Um, This blessing that God has given us um, localizes the benefits of heaven right now. Heaven is the place of recovery, vibrancy, and uncorroded health. And that's what we're being offered right here and right now. That's why Charles Wesley, in his great Christmas hymn, can write, he comes to make his blessings flow, you remember it, yeah, far as the curse is found, right? He's not going to stop until all damnation is removed from your life. And everything that runs in your bloodstreams and neural pathways that cause you pain, it's all going to be taken care of permanently and forever. That's the fullness of salvation that is presented in Ephesians 1. So our blessed position, our heavenly belonging, starts to affect us in the midst of a cursed world where God begins to overthrow the dark elements in our lives. So that's it. Paul introduces us in this verse to a blessed father who grants us a blessed position with corresponding blessed gifts. Now let me make a very brief concluding word regarding each point. The blessed source, the one who matters most, the only reality which cannot erode like statues or crumble like cliff sides, is the one who is beyond, beyond our ever-changing times, beyond our reactive moments, our causes, and our distractions. He's the only one whose opinion of you actually matters because it endures. It isn't fickle. You were constructed by this source and destined to return to this source. And so much of our life right now can be understood as a journey back home to that embryonic Eden, to the place of enveloping love that never dies. You were made by this source and you are destined to go back to this source. It'll just be a little while longer. Um, And a blessed position. Our world writhes and twists and contorts under the ancient hex of Genesis chapter 3. This world of hysterics is absolutely hell-bent that you experience an amnesia of sorts regarding your new position, that you forget your true home, that you forget your place of belonging. It wants you to over-attach right now, to over-expect right now, to over-commit right now, to all the things that decay, all of the shiny trinkets, the degrees, the MCAT scores, the pill-popping, the new cause, the quest for the perfect man or woman, to, to either worship and adore yourself and your moods or to hate yourself and your moods, whatever it is, doesn't care. The world just wants to distract you into falling in love with a world that's dying. The world whispers, don't remember. Like, don't remember who you are. Don't remember your source. Don't remember the one to whom you belong. Don't remember where you're going. Um, And that world seeks to weary us away into nothingness. I had a friend visit from Alaska the other day. His name is Bud. Uh, He's a priest there in Alaska. He's the priest of a church that was planted by members of this church uh, in Anchorage. And after seeing him so many years after seminary, I said, like, if you could summarize your feeling right now, what would it be? And he said, I'm weary. I'm like, do you mean being a priest? He's like, not really. He's like, that's fine. It's just everything else. It's like the world. 
I'm just tired. I'm tired of like the news and I'm tired of making decisions about COVID and I'm tired of like people being mad at me because of decisions I make about COVID and I'm tired of like the political nonsense and I'm tired of barky people on TV telling me what to think and do and I'm just, I'm tired. And and then he said, do you ever get the feeling that you don't really belong here? I'm like, oh yeah, I get that. I do. I do. I don't like it. I mean, I love you, but... But it's a rough world right now, you know, like chips away at us. It's like bloodletting takes away the very sustenance of life. Yeah, it's too hard. But part of that discomfort is the spirit's work within you to say, you're right, this isn't really your place now. That you have a different position, a different home. So I think because of that blessed position, we're going to experience some pain as we lose our bonds here. Lastly, blessed gifts. Paul presents a wildly victorious God who has done something that we never did. He overcame and he overthrew everything corrosive through the bleeding tree of Golgotha. And he's not done interjecting his life into your life. Wherever you fail, he is there to intervene. So this is the last word today. If you've got sin... We know because of his gifts, he'll forgive it. If you've got isolation, he'll adopt you as family. Uh, If you've got moral rot, he'll make you into a new creation. If you've got insecurity about your faith and your future, don't worry. Your name's already written in the eternal gates. No one can take away those blessings. Nobody robs the house on Christmas Day. Those gifts endure. God has said so. So who can say otherwise? The blessed has called you blessed, and the tide of time will never erode that word written over your life. They took your life, they could not take your breath.